0: Welcome to the Christian Mysticism Podcast, where we explore the fascinating history of Christian mysticism from the early days of the church until today. I'm Alberto de la Cruz, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Carlos Ayer, the T. Larson Riggs Professor of History and Religious Studies at Yale University. Well, I have to tell you, Carlos, that this is the episode I was thinking about when you and I first started talking about creating this podcast.
1: Wonderful. I'm so today- glad. <laughs>
0: Today, we're going to talk about Teresa of Avila, and it's a fascinating book that you wrote about her, which for our listeners to know, a link to purchase the book will be in the show notes. So if you're interested in in getting a copy of the book, you'll find a link to it there. But this is the one I've been looking forward to, and Teresa of Avila is such a fascinating and, and such an amazing story, not just her mysticism, but her life, mm-hmm. and we've decided to spread this out over two episodes. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the life of Teresa or Teresa and how she came about to becoming a nun and how she came to become a mystic. So take it away, Carlos.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, in in the English speaking world, she's known as Teresa of Avila. In the Spanish speaking world, she is usually known by her religious name, Teresa de Jesus. Both of those are used kind of interchangeably, Teresa de Avila, Teresa de Jesus. Her real name, before she became a nun, was Teresa Sánchez de Cepeda y Ahomada, born in 1515, and she would die in in 1582. She was uh, not only a mystic, she was a poet, a reformer, who established a new branch of the female Carmelites became known as the Discalced or barefoot Carmelites. She was a writer and in 1970, she was proclaimed a doctor of the church by Pope Paul VI. And uh, in Madrid, uh, actually, there's uh, a building near the Prado Museum. It's the Real Academia de la Lengua Española. It's where uh, Spanish scholars decide what's, what's proper Spanish. About the second or third floor, From the street, you can see the names of the great writers of Spanish culture. And Teresa's name is right up there, right in the front, right above the front entrance. She did much to, uh, although her, you know, if you pick up the original Spanish that she wrote and you're, you know, modern speaker uh, of Spanish, you'll find so many quirky things, you know, she's writing in the 16th century. But she, she helped to establish many things about the Castilian Spanish language. So she has many accomplishments, not just a mystic, like some, like most of the mystics we've been talking about, she was very active and actually once once she started to have mystical ecstasies, she became
0: really, really active. And that's one of the things that we can cover today, uh, all her activity. Would it be fair to say that besides being a nun and a doctor of the church, she was a scholar as well? Oh, yes. Oh, she was very learned,
1: although we can get into this either today or next time. As she was writing, she would always say, Oh, I don't have a university degree. (laughs) I am not a letrada. I don't have any education in theology. So please, you know, she's always saying to her confessors and to the inquisition, please correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know what I'm saying. But by the way, yesterday, you know, I, I, uh, I experienced union with the Trinity. <laughs> I just can't explain it to you. She's very funny. So she did a lot for the Spanish language. And also for theology. Uh, as a matter of fact, when she was named a doctor of the church, the title given to her was doctor of mystical theology. And um, her life story uh, is inseparable from her mysticism, mostly because of the book that she wrote that ended up in English being called her autobiography. And it is an autobiography that takes you up until uh, the 1560s, uh, late 1560s. But uh, the fact is that this document, this text, which is very long, is a judicial document. It was a confession she had to write to the Inquisition, which was very interested in, in having her explain the experiences that she was having. So it's in Spanish, it's usually known as el, el libro de, de la vida, the book of her life. In English, it's usually known
0: as her autobiography. So tell us a little bit about her family and their family history, because I, I know we teased our our listeners in the last episode. Yeah, well, she came from
1: an Hidalgo family. That's the lower nobility of Spain. Hidalgos don't pay royal taxes. (laughs) That's the advantage of being an Hidalgo, which is a contraction of Hijo de Algo, or son of something, son of an important person. They were originally the, the knights who fought with the king and with the nobility to reconquer the entire Iberian Peninsula that's the origin of the hidalgo class and hidalgos not only didn't have to pay royal taxes but they they were entitled uh certain privileges most people don't know this but you know they 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 had laws in the 16th century in spain and everywhere in europe known as sumptuary laws you could not you were not allowed to dress above your class you you also couldn't do certain things so for instance Hidalgos could uh, wear certain items of clothing. And if you were not an Hidalgo, you could not. And for instance, when someone died in the family, Hidalgos were uh, allowed to put more black bunting on their houses and show, uh, uh, you know, in Spanish, luto, ponerse de luto. But they, in fact, were not allowed to show as much grief and, and hang as much black bunting as the nobles above them. And not only that, the men, Hidalgos, were caballeros, and that's usually translated in English as gentlemen. But no, in Spanish, caballero means a man who rides a horse. And this is because Hidalgos could ride horses. Everyone below them was not allowed to ride horses, uh, which is why in the novel Don Quixote, Don Quixote, which is the title you get if you're an Hidalgo, Don Quixote rides a horse, But his squire, Sancho Panza, rides a donkey. So she was from the lower nobility. Her father was in the textile business. And here's where the story gets very interesting because her family was new to Avila, relatively new. And here's a story that was not discovered until the 1940s. So until the 1940s, nobody knew this. Nobody knew that her paternal grandfather was a convert from Judaism. He was a Jew, who was forced to convert and became a Catholic Christian. He was baptized. But in the 1480s, he was hauled in by the Inquisition. And I think everyone knows more or less what the Inquisition is, you know, it's a tribunal that was actually established in Spain to deal with this enormous problem that had surfaced in Spain. Uh, In the late 14th century, there were attacks on Jews who lived in Spain, actually Castile, which the, there was no Spain back then. There, was, there were different kingdoms within the Iberian Peninsula. But in, in Castile, many Jews were forced to convert. And they and their children and grandchildren, uh, having become Christians somewhat unwillingly, kept practicing certain Jewish rituals at home. And the Inquisition was established to uh, process these people because if you're baptized you're not supposed to carry out rituals for any other religion so these uh, conversos as they were known or new christians new christians to distinguish them from old christians these uh, conversos were tried by the inquisition for the heresy of judaizing that is you not know, returning to their jewish faith and um Those who repented uh, received some punishment. I'll get to that in a a minute or two. But those who were unrepentant, who, you know, said, yes, yeah, I've I've been practicing Jewish rituals at home, uh, but were not repentant, were executed, usually burned alive. And the Inquisition was so thorough that they would even try conversos who had already died or who had escaped from the Iberian Peninsula, and they would sentence them to death and they would They would take an effigy that it lay like a dummy, right? A life-size dummy and burn it. They'd be burned in absence. That's how thorough the inquisition was and this desire to sort of wipe out all of the secret Judaism. So this began to happen in the 15th century. But then in 1492, there were still Jews who had not converted in Spain. In 1492, Castile and Aragon, the two kingdoms that are now Spain, were united king ferdinand of aragon isabella of castile 1492 they conquer the last remaining muslim kingdom in iberia granada in that very same year 1492 is a banner year isabella uh, gives money to this crazy italian uh, sailor <laughs> who thinks he can get to china and uh, everybody knows the rest of that story Columbus stumbles onto the Bahamas and uh, takes him a while to figure out he's discovered a new continent. But at the very same time, Fernando and Isabella give the remaining Jews in their newly united kingdoms a very difficult choice, convert or leave. And actually, um, it was more than just convert or leave. Because if you left, you basically lost everything that you had, pretty much like Cubans. Who leave Cuba. You can't take anything with you. So we don't know numbers. We don't know how many tens of thousands converted or how many tens of thousands left. But we do know that many left Iberia and went to North Africa and went to the Eastern Mediterranean. Many of them actually ended up in in what is now Greece, but was then actually in 1492 was already under Turkish rule, Muslim
0: rule. Now was Teresa aware of her grandfather's heritage?
1: I don't think so. But the jury's still out on this. Many of these converso families actually continued to practice Jewish rituals at home, but many didn't. And many of those who didn't would hide it from their children. And here's the reason I don't think that she knew about it. It's it's the story of her grandfather. Her grandfather was tried by the Inquisition and and found guilty of Judaizing. This was in the city of Toledo, where he had his business. But he has business business contacts uh, throughout Castile, like all business people do. And um, he was publicly humiliated. The Inquisition would have this ritual where, where once they um, had enough guilty people to expose to the shame in public, they would have what's called an auto de fe. And you would be processed throughout your city, wearing a humiliating garb known as a San Benito, which had a hat on it. You had to wear this hat that was kind of like a dunce's cone with demons on it. And uh, you also had to wear around your neck a placard that explained what your crime was. And you had to process through all of Toledo. Her grandfather was processed through all the streets in Toledo and that's not the end of the humiliation the placard that he and everybody else was wearing those placards would be hung in your parish church forever (laughs) so that everybody would know that you had been condemned as a judaizer what happened is that her grandfather soon after his public humiliation and remember for a business person to be able to carry out business and live a normal life when everybody knows that He's not only a Jew, but a Judaizer, which is the same thing as being a heretic. Life will be very difficult. And, you know, there was a lot of anti-Semitism, and this is what all what caused this difficult moment in 1492 for the remaining Jews in Spain was anti-Semitism, you know, either convert or leave. But it's not the same as modern anti-Semitism, which, you know, is, is directed at Jews simply for being Jews. In this case, it was their religion that was being persecuted. To cut to the chase, what happens is her grandfather, who had business in Avila, moves to Avila, which is not all that far from Toledo. Spain is about the size of Texas. So going from uh, Toledo to Avila is even shorter distance than going from Houston to Dallas. (laughs) So he moved his entire family to Avila and starts life over with a new identity. This is why I think that she didn't know and then her father teresa's father who was only a a child when all this happened ends up marrying an hidalgo woman an old christian and not only that they changed their surname so completely new identity in a completely new place this was very common many of the conversos who were found guilty by the inquisition and even some who were not found guilty by the inquisition would find another place in which to li- live out their lives. In other words, they became exiles within Spain. And the fact that Teresa never mentions this is not enough to convince me or anyone, but it's the fact that she and in her entire family lived like Hidalgos. And as a matter of fact, how did anybody find out about the secret history of her family? It's very interesting. In Spain, If you were, you claimed Hidalgo status, neighbors could sue you (laughs) for falsifying your ancestry and take it to court so that you either, you know, be humiliated or have to pay taxes or something. But uh, apparently her grandfather got into a dispute uh, with someone who questioned his Hidalgo status. And this lawsuit was in another city, Ciudad Real in the 1940s. Somebody who was studying Pleitos de Hidalgia, lawsuits over Hidalgo status, stumbled on her family's case in court. And the way that her family proved in court that they were Hidalgos, this is very amusing and interesting, I think, was they said, Of course we're Hidalgos. We live like Hidalgos. (laughs) We ride horses. We marry old Christian, you know, we, we marry only within the old Christian population, and so on and so forth. So they, they won the lawsuit and established themselves as old Christians. And then when she was canonized, uh, the process of canonizing someone became very rigorous at, at that time, at, right after she died. And they had an inquest. And one of the questions on the inquest, everybody, hundreds, hundreds of people were asked. This was part of the inquest questionnaire. Do you know if there were any Moors or Jews in her family? And everybody said no.
0: That's something I wanted to ask you. I know you mentioned earlier, obviously, anti-Semitism was, was rampant in Spain at that time, but it was directed at the religion, not necessarily the person for being Jewish. If someone was a converso, a new Christian, were they considered a lower rung in society, a, a lower level, or as as long as they had converted, their, they had the same rights and, and the same... Yeah. Esteem it, in, in society as long as they were converted to Christianity. It, it snowballed,
1: okay? This situation snowballed as conversas kept being processed by the Inquisition, by the hundreds, continually. They, they came to be judged untrustworthy. And eventually, later in the 16th century, during Teresa's lifetime, they would establish laws known as purity of blood statutes, limpieza de sangre and if you had unclean blood that is jewish ancestors or um you know arab muslim ancestors you had many professions closed off to you including becoming a nun (laughs) becoming a monk becoming a priest and and certain professions were closed off you 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 couldn't be a, a professional in most cases So a lot of descendants of the conversos, the second generation, like Teresa had a lot of brothers. All of her brothers went to the new world, to South America. Not all of them stayed there, but most of them did stay in the new world. A lot of conversos went to the new colonies. that's that's better than
0: moving to Avila.
1: (laughs) Move, Move to Peru
0: and nobody knows anything about you. So her brothers were aware that their grandfather was a converso. Those
1: who like me think that she didn't know we also think that perhaps they didn't know but it has been used in arguments for saying that she must have known because look all her brothers ended up but the thing is there were so many spaniards going to the new world especially men at that time that it's not absolute proof that she knew but i'm you know i think it's possible that she did know and she certainly would not have wanted to expose it because she couldn't have been a nun.
0: And that's what makes it all scandalous Yes, that she was actually a descendant of a converso. She did not have the pure blood that the inquisition demanded. And therefore, if they would have known it, she would have never become a nun. Not, and what,
1: and even, if, if, even if she had snuck in, so to speak, if it had come out as the inquisition was very carefully watching every word she wrote we would not know that she existed they, they would not have allowed her to keep writing and, and much less you know have her, her her books published so the thing is that in these inquisition the um canonization inquests all the relatives uh, answer the question uh, any any Jews or Muslims they all say no not a one we're all we're old Christians we're all old Christians this is the same thing as as perjury in a court of law So her relatives are either perjuring themselves, because they know, or they simply don't know. I think it's, you know, uh, parents try to protect their children from awful things. And I think it's quite likely that Teresa was shielded from this knowledge. She may have maybe uh, not as a child, but maybe later in life discovered and just kept quiet. And You know, I I have reason for sort of feeling a connection to this story because it is highly likely, almost certain, that I have Converso ancestors who suddenly moved from a town that had a substantial Jewish population, Albuquerque in Extremadura, suddenly moved to Galicia. And um, I I consulted an Israeli scholar who was actually the first Jewish scholar allowed to do research on the conversos in Spain, ever. Dictator Francisco Franco allowed him to to go and do this research. And I I asked him about my family. And when I told him where they were from and about the sudden move and what town they were from and the surname Nieto, he said, oh, they were Jews. (laughs) And, And here, many of our listeners might not know how unusual this is. But in my Cuban household, we never, ever ate pork or shellfish. <laughs> no lechon at Noche Buena.
0: Never. That's not very Cuban.
1: No. Or, you know, no no, um, no lobster or shellfish of any kind, mussels, clams, and all that
0: stuff. Well, I, I, I should qualify that. That's not very Cuban, but it could be very Juban. As we call uh, <laughs> Cuban Jews,
1: yes, but uh, the thing is, no one in my family ever mentioned it. I, that's it's been my own research. someday I, I would love to go to Albuquerque and search the archives there for see it, what what documents I might still be able to find related to my fa- my ancestors, uh, the nietos. But it's it's quite like you know that there were a converso colonists in large numbers throughout Spanish America. And in many of these communities, for generations, people did things like my family. You know, they abstained from pork or they they lit candles on Friday evening and they didn't know why they were doing it. It's just something their family did. And it was, you know, generations later, somebody points out to them, hey, you know, it could be that your, your ancestors were Jewish. But the most amazing case of all, Uh, about this identity issue is a town in Portugal, Belmonte. Because Portugal eventually was annexed by Spain and the Jews in, in Portugal, many of whom had come from Spain, ended up having the same problems. Anyway, in Belmonte in the 1980s, the entire town came out of the closet, so to speak, and said, you know what? We've been Jews here since the 16th century practicing our rituals at home. And I remember, I think it's the Washington Post where I first read the story. The the local minister Minister of tourism was quoted as saying, oh yeah, we knew they were Jews all along. (laughs) So some knew, some didn't. It's very interesting though, that no one has been able to certify one way or the other, whether she knew or didn't know But even more important, I think, is was there some kind of secret Jewish theology, even Jewish mysticism passed on in her household that affected her as a Christian mystic?
0: Nobody knows. And you
1: you can't connect the dots between her mysticism and that of, let's say, the, the Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism. You can't connect the dots. But any way you look at it, it's very interesting. As you said, I liked your the way that you put it, that, you know, if this information had come out, let's say in 1550 something, we wouldn't know what remarkable gifts this woman had. She would have been persecuted and hounded. So it is kind of
0: tragic. I can only imagine. So what was Teresa's life like as a child and, and how did she end up joining a, a convent?
1: Well... You know, they were Hidalgos, right? They were upper class, lowest rank of the upper class, but still. And her father's business and a grandfather and father's business, they were comfortable. So her mother died when she was only 12 and she was approaching teenage years. Her father felt unable to protect her the way that teenage girls were supposed to be protected from the advances of young men. And a common solution within the Hidalgo class was well, send your teenage girl to a convent. Her father sent her to the convent of the incarnation for her own protection because uh, there was a very rigid honor code in Spain at this time. All sorts of things that people in her station were not supposed to do. Uh, Whether you were male or female, there were many things that, you know, honor was very important, but for women, the honor that had to be preserved was the honor of virginity. And her father was a very busy man and he couldn't guarantee that he'd always be able to look out for her. And again, I, I'm going to say something that kind of shows you or can reveal to our, our listeners how long this honor code remained in place in, in Spanish culture or Hispanic culture because when I was a teenager in Chicago, there was a, a Cuban community. There were 80,000 of us in Chicago at one point, And most of us lived in the same neighborhood. And I was a teenager. And so was my brother. You couldn't go out on a date with a girl without a chaperone. And at all parties, if you're going to throw a party, or you were invited to a party, there were always chaperones there, making sure that you know, uh, no girl's honor was ever violated. So she ends up in a convent and what she says about this in in her so-called autobiography is that yeah she you know she she did what she was supposed to in the convent you know she prayed with the nuns and she went through the routines that she was supposed to go through but this convent was full of hidalgo girls and even higher nobility and there was a lot of traffic going in and out of the convent and some of the wealthier Uh, girls actually had suites and servants in the convent. So it was very lax and not not at all what one would expect would turn anyone into a mystic.
0: Let me ask you, how old was Teresa when she went into the convent? Well, shortly
1: after her her mother died, so maybe 12 or 13. And that was not unusual, uh, which was one of the reasons that monastic institutions, male and female, were filled with monks and nuns who really had no vocation. But what happened to her was that she became very ill in her late teens. So ill, in fact, that she had to leave the convent and go home. And her father was desperate, consulting as many doctors as possible. No one could find out what was wrong with with this girl who was basically partially paralyzed very weak, and there was no cure for whatever she had. Nobody could figure out what what it was that she had or or how to cure it. So in utter desperation, her father, knowing he could not take care of her and that doctors, traditional medicine was not helping her, took her to another town, to an herbalist. Uh, In Spanish, the word is curandera, a healer. This has nothing to do with the church whatsoever or with medicine. Traditional medicine, anyway. So he took her to this curandera, and um, she couldn't help her either. As a matter of fact, she actually made her worse. Her health declined sharply in the hands of the, the healer. So her father resigned to the fact that she was close to death, brought her home, and she died. Or so they thought. They were preparing her funeral. They had actually already laid her out, they were having the wake. Of course back then there were no funeral homes funeral parlors and this is done at home and they held a mirror up to her nose this was the way that you know w- without a- electronic equipment to see if your heart is still beating or you have brain waves this is how they tried to figure out if somebody was dead or alive they-, they couldn't find any sign of breathing on the mirror no moisture of any sort so yeah, she's dead And as they were preparing her for burial, the final night of the wake, someone in the room fell asleep and knocked over a candle and the candle made a curtain light up, (laughs) catch on fire. And Teresa came back to life. She was not dead. It seems she never, ever spoke about having actually undergone death or had what is now called a near death experience. Never. So she was probably in a coma and came to with, with all the ruckus in the room. And then her recovery was very, very, very slow. But she did recover. Well, she tells us in her own life story that she was paralyzed. And very, very gradually, she regained the use of her limbs. And for quite some time, she doesn't specify how long, she actually crawled on all fours on the floor because she couldn't walk. But when she finally regained her strength uh, sufficiently, she went back to the convent. And there she became a good nun. She did everything she was supposed to. She was very obedient. You know, that's one of the vows you make, to be obedient. And she did all the praying she was supposed to. But in her own words, right, as she explains it, she was a kind of a lukewarm nun. She was definitely not having mystical experiences of any kind. But sometime uh, during her initial period of illness an uncle of hers had uh, given her some books to read that made a huge difference in her life and these were devotional mystical texts that familiarized her with some of the things that we've been covering here uh, such as the idea that at the very core of the human self there's a divine spark but more importantly, she learned about certain ways to pray. And the most important, I'm, I'm looking it up right now. So I make sure I get the right information from one book in particular, written by Francisco de Osuna, known as the, in the title of the text that had a tremendous influence on her was the Spiritual Alphabet. And it was a how to book, you know, how, how to encounter the divine, how to pray. And how to pray in such a way that you end up encountering the divine and what she learned from the spiritual alphabet was a milder version of what one can find in meister eckhart and his disciples but now this was in spanish she she couldn't read latin so this is all in spanish and the two terms that she learned and they're more than terms they're more than words they're a way of praying the first is recogimiento usually translated in english as recollection or inner stillness straight out of the cloud of unknown right this is sort of the what the cloud of unknowing describes as the cloud of forgetting or the naked intent towards god recogimiento for those who know spanish you know that word actually has pretty to me anyway i get a picture in my mind because uh, to Recoger is to gather up things that are scattered, right? So recollection or inner stillness is bringing in all these parts of yourself together to this inner stillness. And the other concept that she learned, which is also a way of praying, is dejamiento, or self-abandonment, or as Eckhart would say, letting go. And Eckhart's term for this was gelassenheit to let things be, dejar, just to let go of your attachments, let go of every worldly attachment that you have, and put yourself in the hands of God and trust that he will take you into himself. But there was a problem with these two terms because in Spain, a certain heresy arose, which was given the name alumbrados, or the enlightened ones. And they they use these methods of prayer and they use these terms, but they were accused of claiming that this method of prayer could take you to a certain state of prayer in which you were no longer praying, but God was praying in you. And that if you reached this stage, you couldn't sin. Were there alumbrados? Yes, there were. Did they all practice this? No, not really, not all of them, but some did. But The fact that uh, she, you know, had this text and read it would later surface in her dealings with the Inquisition. Another author she read was uh, a Franciscan, Pedro de Alcantara, who was a discalced Franciscan. Those were very, very strict Franciscans who wore no shoes. They wore sandals, who was a very, very holy. These are her words this is how she described Pedro Alcantara, whom she would later meet. He was so extremely thin that he seemed to be made of nothing more than tree roots. He was very holy and also very kind, though he was a man of a few words unless asked a question. And his responses were exquisite because of his deep understanding. And the books her uncle gave her and other books that she picked up in 1559, most of them, would be placed on the index of forbidden books. And she writes in her uh, so-called autobiography that it broke her heart, These her favorite books in Spanish, she could no longer read. But she says, oh, but by that time I didn't need them. God has taught me more than those books ever did, directly. <laughs> Very typical of, of Teresa. But yeah, she had to turn in all these books, get rid of the, her favorite books. Uh, That's in 1559. By that time, she was already well on her way down the mystical path. But this idea of recogimiento and dejamiento and the prayer of quiet, the stillness, the inward plunge into yourself, the gathering together of the different bits of your identity and personality and and desires, they lead to, and and this is, you know, we can take this up next time when we deal with her, her mysticism. They they take you to a state that is much higher than you can ever attain by simply reciting prayers.
0: I imagine that her possessing these books and then confessing in her autobiography that she was heartbroken, I imagine that created some sort of friction with the church hierarchy or, or the Inquisition, correct?
1: Oh, yes, because, you know, um, especially, you know, if you if you use those terms, dejamiento and recogimiento, you could be suspected of being an alumbrado or alumbrada. But if you got rid of the books, you spared yourself a lot of trouble, because the index of forbidden books of 1559, what it meant was this was an, an edict, basically, that asked people, if you have these books, you need to get rid of them. Not just, you know, keep them at home and never read them. No, get rid of them you're not supposed to own these books and of course in her convent you know i've never um read anything so i don't uh, about what the nuns did with these books i don't think they burned them i doubt highly doubt that they did but they had to get rid of them but she said this is what she had uh, to say about what was going on in the church she said she was living in and i'll I'll use the spanish accent tiempos recios. Hard times, difficult times, troubled times. These are troubled times, she said. And by troubled times, she was referring not only to the alumbrado heresy, but also to Protestantism. She never ever met a Protestant in the flesh, but she was very aware of their existence and always prayed for them so that they would, you know, convert and and leave their heresy behind. And she called all Protestants Lutherans, this is very common, Lutheranos. So the quote uh, from her from 15, this event in 1559 is, the Lord showed me so much love and taught me by so many methods that I have had very little need of books since then. But here's what happened to middle-aged Teresa. You know, she reads these books and she's reading them. And she's also reading books that suggest that you meditate on events in the gospel and especially events in the passion and crucifixion of christ that you imagine yourself there it's a very common kind of devotion that that you find not only in these texts that ended up being forbidden but in, in many other devotional texts that were not so one day this is how she describes it she was venerating praying before an image of the suffering christ christ right after he has been scourged before he's crucified. And there was this image which still exists. I mean, you can see it if you go to Avila. Very small. It showed it as Christ in a sitting position. And the image has three little mirrors in the back so that you can see all of the, the wounds on Christ's back. So she's doing this meditation and prayer and recollection and dejamiento. And boom, she experiences Christ's presence very, very intensely. And from that moment forward, she keeps having more and more mystical experiences that end up in in being ecstasies. And I should point out at this point right now, though, that her life up to that point, as she writes about it, is one of sort of being like half asleep and not really alive, not fully alive. But from that point forward, this woman who came so close to death, and have to crawl on all fours, becomes a dynamo of activity. And she will end up not only creating a new branch of her order where all of those privileged girls are no longer allowed to have servants <laughs> or or you know constant visitors and all. No, no, no. Very strict, very strict enclosure, and you know, very strict adherence to poverty. And they, they end up becoming Descalzos, the Descalced Carmelites. She would go on to establish 17 new convents, including a new convent in Avila, her first. She eventually gets out of the convent of the Incarnation, brings some nuns with her. Someone gives them a house inside the town, inside Avila, where she establishes the convent of St. Joseph. And they adhere to the original Carmelite rule from the 13th century very, very, very strictly. And here's one of the more interesting things about this reform of hers, is that part of the reform is that in addition to vocal prayer, right, which is what nuns do, they pray as a community vocally, they recite or or chant prayer. The nuns would have time for silent prayer. And it's like a mystical incubator, right? This, This new Carmelite convent, but even more impressive to me is that there was a lot of opposition in Avila to establishing another Carmelite convent because what she changed was that at the convent of the Incarnation all these privileged girls you know if you if you dropped your daughter off and she became a nun and you were the father you had to give the convent a dowry it was just like she was getting married it was probably a less lesser uh, amount than an actual marriage dowry, but it was still a substantial amount of money. And this is how these convents uh, sustained themselves, through dowries, which meant that you only had privileged girls become nuns. You know, no peasant girl, no shepherd girl could become a nun because there was no dowry money. What she changed was, okay, fine. If your family has money and you can give the convent a dowry, fine. But if your family doesn't have money, you're welcome. Come on in. We'll take you in. And then they live mostly by begging. That's why the town was uh, so opposed to establishing not just another Carmelite convent, but that kind of convent. So what she does is she opens up the nuns in her convent, not just to silent prayer, recogimiento, but she also opens the door to underprivileged girls and women and the None who would become her right-hand woman and constant companion is one of these poor girls. Ana de San Bartolomé was a shepherd girl, illiterate, and Teresa taught her to read and write. And uh, later on, it would be Ana de San Bartolomé who takes Teresa's Carmelite reform and her mysticism into France and the Low Countries. And, uh, another amazing woman who wrote not one, but two autobiographies. <laughs> But Teresa would, of course, to get the funds and the houses, buildings to establish all these convents, she traveled all over the Iberian Peninsula, Castile, begging donors to, you know, help her out, help her establish convents. And one of these patrons would be one of the most powerful men in Spain, the Duke of Alba. The Duke of Alba would establish a Carmelite convent at Alba de Tormes not too far from Avila. And that's where she would die in 1582. And why was she there? Well, she had been summoned there because one of the Duke of Alba's daughters was getting married and they wanted Teresa there. By by this time, by the time she dies in 1582, she is considered a living saint. You know, and we can come back to this the next time we deal with Teresa is how, even though she was closely investigated by the Inquisition, when she becomes this very active dynamo, establishing convents everywhere. And she keeps writing, and keeps writing, and keeps writing, and keeps writing. And the king, Philip II, learns of her and becomes very much one of her supporters. As a matter of fact, that autobiography of hers, which is a judicial document, the Inquisition ordered that all copies be destroyed because they, they still weren't sure And this is she's already establishing convents and so on. But no, the Inquisition won't allow anyone to own or read her autobiography. Of course, this is not printed. This is written out, copied by hand. King Philip II gets a copy and keeps it. (laughs) And hardly anyone knows that the king has a copy. After she dies in 1582, it'll take six years, but in 1588, several of her her books are published between two covers as a single volume, a- including her autobiography. And from that point on, well, it gets translated into just about every European language and also translated into Latin for the learned. And this is how difficult religious life was in her day and age. Some people consider her a living saint. Some people consider her absolutely Orthodox in every way, but some people still consider her a heretic, and especially there were there were members of the Dominican Order who kept denouncing her to the Inquisition, even after she was dead, up until 1619 when she was beatified, and the Inquisition kept re- uh, receiving these accusations until then, but after that point, when she's beatified, that's that you know that's the ultimate seal of approval for anybody, and then she becomes. Um, kind of the the giant that she is known as up to now
0: i think it's obvious how her work was distributed you know that even the king had a copy of her autobiography had so much influence at her time and and not only at her time to this very day she is revered and and loved and studied i think it's just amazing how her work and her life And all that she's done has survived for 500 years. It's quite amazing.
1: Yes. And we can add another layer of amazement to this, is that she was a woman. She didn't have a degree in theology, like all the men who were examining her constantly. And yet she achieves this status, not just as a living saint, but as a mystical theologian, right, who ends up being revered by many learned male clerics and and not just revered but basically adored by some of some of those around her right she was the, la madre la madre teresa la santa madre people are calling her la santa madre even before she is beatified or canonized as a matter of fact i'm going to read to you the title page of the very first edition of her texts of her books it's it's entitled in spanish obras. De la gloriosa madre Santa Teresa de Jesús, fundadora de la reforma de la orden de Nuestra Señora del Carmen. The works of the glorious mother Saint Teresa of Jesus, founder of the reform of the order of Our Lady of Carmel. This is 1588. She's only been dead six years. She's not a santa. She's not a saint. She's not even blessed. And yet, in the title page. She's already being called the saint.
0: Her life, as we've learned in today's podcast, is an amazing story. From the very beginning, her family history, what she went through, her illnesses, her run-ins with the Inquisition, all the wonderful things she did in reforming the Carmelites. But I think in the next episode, our listeners are going to find it even more amazing the visions and the ecstasies that she experienced as a mystic yes and and that's uh, something that
1: would also be popularized that wouldn't be just for nuns that's that's the other thing is that you know she this stuff breaks out of the convent and
0: reaches lay people well i think this episode gives us a good starting block to be able to understand and appreciate the mystical experiences and visions That Teresa wrote about that we're going to explore in our next episode. So thank you, Carlos, for helping us understand who St. Teresa of Avila is. And on the next episode, we're going to learn the amazing visions and mystic experiences she went through. So until the next episode, thank you for listening to the Christian Mysticism Podcast. If you have any questions for Dr. Eyre, you'll find our email address in the show notes. Just send it over and we'll try to answer it in a future episode. And don't forget to click the subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode of the Christian Mysticism Podcast.